0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where an expert is given just six minutes to present his argument. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's topic is managing new product development in futures trading and financial markets. Our guest is Leo Malamed. Leo is the retired chairman of the board of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is the largest futures trading exchange in the world. Leo has an incredible personal story to tell he was born in Bialystok Poland and his family escaped from the Nazis through a very circuitous route first to Lithuania then across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and then to Japan before emigrating to Chicago he was saved by a member of the Japanese consulate in Vilnius Lithuania who provided visas to Jews in violation of his government policies Leo joined the CME as a young man and proceeded to take over his leadership He led new product development and introduced features on currencies, stocks, and interest rates. He also introduced cash settlement in lieu of physical delivery, which really opened up the full gamut of possible index choices. Another critical innovation that Leo fought for was getting rid of open outcry and replacing it with electronic trading. When Leo arrived at the CME, it was a downtrod exchange focusing on butter and eggs, and those contracts are long gone, and have been replaced with currency, S and P 500, and eurodollar interest rate futures, which are the most heavily traded contracts in the world. So, with that, I turn to Leo Malamud. Please begin your six-minute presentation.
1: I was seven years old when World War II began, and the Germans captured the city of Bialystok, Poland, where I was born. When they came to get my father, he was nowhere to be found. All they could do was beat up my mother and ransack our house. My father's decision to run and later to have my mother grab me and take the last Train out of Bialystok was heroic and unique. It began a miraculous escape, which outwitted the Nazis and the KGB and took two years, spanned three continents, six languages, the Trans Siberian Railroad, and Japan, courtesy of a life-saving transit visa from Japanese Consul General Chiyun Sugihara. We ended in Chicago. I grew up as an American kid and graduated from John Marshall Law School, became a lawyer. I successfully practiced for several years, but I didn't love it. Before law school, I answered an ad from Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Bean thinking it was a law firm advertising for a runner. I took the job for $25 a week on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange floor. The instant I showed up on the Merc floor, I was smitten. I had found my destiny. At the time, the Merck was a downtrodden, total, unlawful exchange with a terrible reputation where its board of directors ruled for their own benefit. I became a leader in the membership and initiated a takeover. In 1969, I became the Merck chairman By then, I had immersed myself in futures trading and its true value in developing strong capital markets. In those days, the financial news was mostly about foreign exchange. The world was still operating under the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system, where values in foreign exchange were determined by finance ministers. I had become a hardened believer in the free market. My mentor, Milton Friedman, advocated the idea that value should be determined by supply and demand, not finance ministers. I began thinking about a futures market in currency. When I broached the idea to the Merck's board of directors, they left me out of the room. You are a lawyer, Mr. Malameth, not an economist. Futures are for agriculture, soybeans and pork bellies. But I wondered why? Was there an economic principle involved? My idea needed validation. I went to the great man, Milton Friedman. It's a wonderful idea, he said. Do it. I was thrilled and gratified, but I needed it in writing. We agreed on a price of $5,000 for him to write a feasibility study. I took that paper and ran with it first. To our board of directors, and then to every corner of the globe. It changed the world of finance. I went from currency futures to interest rates. 20 years later, Nobel laureate Merton Miller called financial futures the greatest invention of the past two decades. As an encore, I introduced cash settlement in place of physical delivery, bringing on S and P futures, then I dared to transform open outcry to an electronic venue known as Globex. It seems so obvious today, but it was anything but. It gave us the ability in 2002 to go public, and then. To merge with our rival, the Chicago Board of Trade. Five years later, we were the largest exchange in the world. Our future lies in embracing technology and globalization and staying open to new
0: ideas. Leo, in your book, You discussed two corruption scandals at the CME. The first was when a speculator cornered the onion market, and the second was a case of insider trading in eggs by a CME board member. Can you give us a little background about those two scandals?
1: The onion scandal changed the futures market. It ended up as a law against listing onions on a futures market. The only commodity that has a bill in Congress against it signed by President Gerald Ford. But the idea of using the market for the benefit of the board of directors is arcane, it's ridiculous, and that's the exchange I took over. My mission was to write and enforce the rules and advance new products to the exchange, which was limited
0: to butter and eggs. Like you, my first job in the financial markets was as a runner for Henry Shacken at the Chicago Board of Trade in the Treasury bond futures pit in the summer of 84. I was only 17 at the time. I ran the orders to a broker. And when he went to lift the offer side, instead of buying the securities from the entire pit, he bought the futures from the four best friends that were just right around him. And there was this relationship between the broker and certain pit traders which was unfair to the other traders in the pit or the public who had orders with different brokers. How do you think about that smaller form of corruption?
1: The open-out system lent itself to exactly what you described. Clearly, if the markets were to grow and function, they had to be open to competition. Competition could only happen if we went electronic. Now, that was a terrible thought in those days because... Electronic trading would take away a lot of jobs, but I also knew that it would make the markets fairer and better and honest and, in time, would create new jobs, just as it actually did. But, of course, you can't prove that in the beginning. And so it was a long, long fight with the broker community. lasted over 10 years. I had death threats. I had to hire a policeman to guard my door at the office.
0: Whenever there is a change in an organization, there will be winners and losers and we should expect the losers to fight. At the CME, floor traders would lose if there was an end to open outcry because they would lose their edge in the pit. Yet, you gave the floor traders a veto right for that change. Why did you do that? There was
1: no way that anybody could institute electronic trading in those days. You could forget about it. That was like poison. This was not something you could even talk in mixed company. You never mentioned electronic trading. But I knew that it was coming. I knew that that was a hopeless argument. And so I created a committee of people that I thought understood technology and and were traders. And I said to them, look, we've got to come out with a report that tells the board the truth that electronic trade is coming. And unless we're there before the rest of the crowd, we're going to lose the business. Everyone on that committee was smart and knew Leo, you can't do this kind of thing without a referendum. You know that. I said there is only one way you can win a referendum and get electronics going. And that is if we guarantee that it only will apply to new contracts so it doesn't affect any of their income. In fact, it expands their income with new contracts. And that's the only way they'll pass. I have to add a codicil that we will not change that except by referendum. We want it big because everybody recognized that it doesn't cost them a dime and it gives them the chance for new markets and let it be electronic, so what? As long as their income was not affected, they voted for it. Later in time, we had to change that. If we were gonna compete internationally, we had to.
0: When the CME was owned by its trading members, you, led the new product development effort. And I think your success in part was due to your interaction with CME members who were both clever and entrepreneurial. Today, the CME is a large public corporation owned by its shareholders. And since the CME's initial public offering, the exchange has had little to no new product development. Does new product development depend on entrepreneurial individuals outside of public companies?
1: It's a serious question, and I did consider it. You hit the nail on the head. Many of the ideas grew out of conversations by the members in the pits. I thought that I would create a council of very prominent and knowledgeable people, Nobel laureates as well as financial experts, but you're right. You don't get a hundred percent of what you want. You get some of it.
0: Leo, we are both very good friends of Myron Scholes, the Nobel Prize-winning economist. I worked with Myron at Solomon thirty years ago. What was your strategy and how to use Myron's incredible talents to benefit the CME? He is
1: brilliant, and I wanted him as well as several others, Gary Becker. In two thousand and six, we. Discussed the idea of a think tank that would include a number of Nobel laureates, and so we created the Competitive Market Advisory Council (CMAC), and CMAC included Gary Becker and Myron Scholes and Robert Merton, including a bunch of other very accomplished uh, people and experts in markets and. It's the only corporate entity in the world that has a think tank of this caliber. And I honestly owe much of it to Myron, who helped me create what I believe is a very important idea.
0: Leo, we got a question from the audience. This question is from Kevin Lennon, who runs real estate for the CME Group. Kevin said that, When you started the S&P futures contract, it was so successful that you decided to go back to S&P and proactively renegotiate the license agreement in their favor, which cost the CME more money in the near term, but paid off massively in the long run. Tell us what you did and why it worked out for the better.
1: When I first thought of the idea of stock futures, I had to choose between the Dow or the SP. I chose the SP. Our attorney said to me that the price of the SPs is public and we don't need to bother with a license. I believe in intellectual property. And I said to him, No, Jerry, this doesn't feel right. I want to go and get license. So we met in New York, Jerry and I. And the chairman of s and and it was awkward because the chairman said, you mean to tell me you want to pay me for something that I'm giving away free? And I think his attorney sitting next to him gave him an elbow. <laughs> yes, yes. And I smiled, but I said, I do because it's your intellectual property. Besides, I want an exclusive license on this. And they said, what do you want to pay? This had never been done, Larry. You always were trading in public instruments that you could deliver. And you didn't need license to trade in cows or pigs or whatever. And here we were being asked, well, how much do you want to pay? The biggest volume that we've ever seen in any contract was 10,000 contracts a day. That was off the wall. So I said to him, What we'll do is pay you 10 cents a trade up to 10,000. Anything over 10,000, that's ours without pay. They looked at each other and they said, Pretty fair, okay. And I explained, we never had a trade over 10,000. So that was signed and a 10 year deal was made. It turned out that it is intellectual property when the Board of Trade wanted to list the Dow, the Dow people went to court and got an injunction and for the next 15 years we were the only exchange in the world that traded equities in futures. Now. I knew it wasn't a fair deal about the first week of trading because we went well over 10,000 almost immediately. This was the biggest winner I've ever seen. I tore up the contract and made it fair. We made a new deal for another 20 years and McGraw-Hill were ecstatic. We put S&P on the boards.
0: Leo, in your prepared remarks, you spoke about the advent of cash settlement as a critical innovation for financial futures. When I worked at Solomon Brothers, I was one of the most active traders in the Chicago Board of Trade's municipal bond futures contract, which was cash settled. And Solomon was the largest investor on the long side, and Susquehanna was usually on the short side. I was very concerned that the cash settlement process would be abused to our detriment. How do you prevent corruption of this cash settlement process?
1: Yeah, well, it was, of course, uppermost in my mind. It was a big deal for the markets to be able to create an index. And that could only be done because it was cash settled at the end. You know, it took a long time before the CFTC agreed to cash settle, but it opened up the market. I could have never had a uh, stock index futures. How could I deliver whether it's 30 or 500? How do you do that? Whereas, An index, easy enough. And that problem you correctly pointed to happened in the euro-dollar contract when LIBOR took over the cash settlement and the corruption that started ended LIBOR. It was a bad decision of the exchange to give the euro-dollar pricing over to LIBOR at the conclusion
0: I want to mention my own personal interaction with the LIBOR scandal. In 1996, I was working at Solomon Brothers and I was upset that the CME was handing over the cash summon process of LIBOR to the British Bankers Association. I met with Marcy Ango, who at the time was a senior lawyer at Solomon. And Marcy helped me draft a letter to the CFTC asking them to reject the CME's modification to the Eurodollar contract because of our fears of market manipulation.
1: Yeah, well, first. I want to tell you, I wasn't present for the decision to give it over to LIBOR. I had retired when this deed was already history. And I couldn't believe that that was happening. But it was. We had to depend on the bankers to give an honest evaluation. And I'm afraid that it created the biggest scandal in the history of markets, I think, so many banks getting fined over billions of dollars, and it didn't work. And for that reason, we had the scandal.
0: Let's talk about the CME as a too-big-to-fail institution. One of the chapters in your book describes your involvement in the 1987 stock market crash. For the CME to function after the crash, the losers in equity futures had to pay an aggregate $2.5 billion in cash to the winners by the next morning otherwise you're out of business one dealer morgan stanley owed the cme more than a billion dollars now the chairman of morgan stanley had a tough day so he went to bed early but that wouldn't stop you leo tell us what happened after that stock market crash
1: you're talking about the scariest day of my life uh, <laughs> we were used to uh change in value in the hundreds of millions of dollars as a norm and here on this day, $2.5 billion changed hands between the longs and the shorts. And as you said, we could not open the next morning unless every dollar was paid for. Of course, I slept in the clearinghouse watching and waiting. I had talked to Alan Greenspan before the markets closed, and he said to me, Will you open the next morning? Alan Greenspan knew what I knew because he had been a trader before on his own. And I I had to be honest with him. I said, I don't know. We've got to wait and see what happens. Does the money come in or not? He says, call me as soon as you know, because if it doesn't come in, we may have the next end of the world. (laughs) You're talking about the scariest part of my life. And two in the morning... We knew that Morgan Stanley was lacking. I had the private number of the chairman of Morgan Stanley and called and said to him, you don't know me, but you owe us a billion (laughs) dollars. And we're waiting to see how it comes in. They came in 20 minutes to the opening when I was talking to the banker, our banker the Continental Bank, which was the biggest bank in Chicago at the time. She said to me, Leo, we're in, except for a couple of hundred million dollars is still missing. I said, a couple of hundred million? My God, that's terrific. What we were talking about, 2.5 billion. She says, yeah, Leo, but my authority is only good for $10 million. And just then... The chairman of the Continental Bank walked in and she said, wait a minute, let me talk to the chairman. She came back, she says, Leo, we're all right. He said, you guys are good for a couple of hundred. Million. And they put up the money. So that's how
0: close it came. My takeaway is that the CME needs an enormous line of credit. The exchange in our financial system just can't be dependent on the solvency of a couple of firms after a stock market crash. Do you agree with the Dodd-Frank determination that the CME is a too-big-to-fail institution?
1: Yeah, well, in 87, we didn't have the system that we have today. I can't, at this period of time, give you the chapter and verse of what the rule is today. Very complex, but also very solid and with the highest approval by the Federal Reserve i have no doubt it is as distant from what it was in 1987 as you can imagine
0: let's talk about asia next when you wanted to trade cme products around the clock you needed to work with an asian exchange why did you decide to partner with singapore
1: i ended up in singapore because lee Kuan Yew, the person that created singapore was probably one of the most brilliant people i've ever met and uh, he asked me what was holding me up from helping them create an exchange. And I said, well, you guys have no rules. He said, who makes the rules? I said, well, in the United States, the exchange makes the rules and the regulatory authority, the CFTC, approves the rules of the exchange. He says, does the CFTC have a book? And I said, well, of course it has a book. He said, send me the book. <laughs> They copied the CFTC rules and CIMEX was born in Asia.
0: In your opening remarks, you mentioned that your family was saved by Chiuni Sugara, who was responsible for visas at the Japanese consulate in Lithuania in 1939. Sugara knew of the genocide of the Jews and decided to act unilaterally, giving Jewish refugees visas to Japan. What motivated him? Why was he so successful? How did he get around the inertia of the Japanese bureaucracy who was opposed to what he was doing? And why did he risk his career and maybe even his life to save people he didn't know?
1: Well, you know, some 30 years later, I was giving a seminar in Tokyo when a Japanese gentleman came up to me and said, I am Hiroki Sugihara, the oldest son of Chiyun Sugihara. Hiroki was five years old when I was eight. I had never met him at the Council, but we became great friends and we both agreed to make sure that the world understood the humanitarian act of his father. He told me that his father had called his wife and the three children together and said to them, you know, the government of Japan, the Foreign Affairs does not want me to issue visas to these people who are trapped here and their only crime is that they were Jews. And I am inclined to give them the visa and save their lives. If I follow the dictates of my government, I will violate the dictates of my God." By then, Sugihara had become a Christian. And Hiroki said, I was the first to raise my hand, he was five years old, to give them the visas. And of course, he was one great man. He represented a lifeline to 6,000 of us who otherwise were surely going to be murdered and decided to violate the edicts of his government in favor of doing the right thing. And so I made sure together with Hiroki that the world recognized him as one of the Righteous of the world, he was a great humanitarian.
0: You took the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia and then caught a boat from the Russian port of Vladivostok and traveled to Japan before the attack on Pearl Harbor. What was that voyage like?
1: Well, you know, it's an experience and a half. We were almost three weeks on one train. We had a small cabin to ourselves that turned into a sleeping quarters at night. It made many, many stops because it was a one track. And so it would bring on all kinds of goods. My father would leave and my mother was always afraid that it was the last we will see of him. We'd leave to bring in milk and bread and things to eat. I was the only child on that train it was a horrifying experience, but one thing that I remember is that my father tried to explain to me the difference between Fahrenheit and centigrade. He explained that difference to me, and then he told me that Fahrenheit and centigrade meet at 40 below zero. They're both the same. In an hour or so, we're going to be in Barbadosan where it will be 40 below zero and I'm gonna show you what it's like at 40 below zero. They bundled me up, uh, and uh, I came on to the station, and my breath fell as a piece of ice from my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's an experience and a half. We ended in Vladivostok where it was the last chance for the KGB to stop us. My father was a anti-communist rabble rouser. He was afraid that they would figure out, but I mean, the whole thing was so much luck that I can't describe it.
0: Your wartime journey reminds me of my mother and grandparents' escape from Nazi Europe. My family was stuck in Marseille in 1942, desperate to get out and get to America. My family depended on contributions made to the joint, the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee that paid my grandfather's salary when he worked at a Jewish medical clinic in Marseille. Leo, your family was supported by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and the Joint. How do you think about these organizations and their success getting Jews out of Europe? Well,
1: so thankful that they existed and that their money was available to those of us who were stuck And thank God that the Jewish history is loaded with organizations of aid. I don't know of any other culture that is so giving in terms of helping its own brethren and others. And the joint was enormously important when we had to pay off the Russian officials to buy a train ticket to Vladivostok from Moscow. As you can imagine, they charged Jews five times the regular price. Fortunately, my parents got the money from friends and organizations like The Joint.
0: Leo, you were born in Bialystok, Poland, one of the great Jewish communities. Before World War II, there were over 100,000 Jews living in Bialystok, and now there are no Jews left. What was it like for you to return to your hometown?
1: Well, it was difficult because my parents would not come. After the war, my father said to me, there's nothing there for us. And he was right. He was always right. One of the smartest people I've ever met who knew to run instead of stay. And although I know that every country in Europe is trying to overcome its history with respect to Jews. I think it'll take a long, long time before that happens, because the history is too strong of anti-Semitism throughout Europe and the world. And so we've got a way to go.
0: Leo, one of your responsibilities with the CME is to have a dialogue with the senior leadership in China. How is our relationship with the Chinese in the financial sector and in particular with futures trading?
1: That's the biggest question that we have today. How do we handle a relationship in China and the U.S.? I'm a big admirer of the people of China so that when I approached the government of China years ago, in the early 2000s that they needed markets in foreign exchange, oil as well as financial products. I'm a capitalist. The biggest difference that I think will make the United States the winner in this competition is that we can think freely. There is no limitation on our ideas. Any nation that has the rule of dictatorship can't say that, and it doesn't work. I know many, many of the Chinese that came here to the universities and they loved what they learned and they loved to be able to think freely. And it's that difference. In the last century, over 70% of the innovations and inventions in the world occurred by Americans in America, because we could think freely. And one more thing, if we fail, it isn't a total failure. We could try again without the stigma of failure. In most nations, if you try something and it doesn't work, that's your end. It's the freedom to think that makes the difference. And I think it will win out in the long run against China. Although I try and help them grow and open their markets, because that's the key of market strength and market growth. They still have not opened their markets the way they should, and they ignore intellectual property. But
0: I still love the people. We end each episode on a note of optimism. Leo, what are you optimistic about?
1: We will innovate, find ways to win in an honest fashion. I am an ultimate optimist. How could I be anything less than an optimist after the escape I described from the death camp? So once an optimist as a child remains an optimist as an adult. And one more thing, you think anyone but an optimist could have created an exchange such as the CME group? I don't think
0: so. Leo Malamed, thank you so much for joining us today. That ends today's session. Let me make a quick plug for next week's program. Our speaker will be David Kronfeld, who is a former venture capitalist, Booz Allen consultant, and corporate executive at Ameritech. David has a new book entitled Remarkable, Proven Insights to Accelerate Your Career. David uses his real-life experiences to teach negotiation, find common ground, and learn your counterpart's perspective to solve problems. You're going to love David's insights because it will help you improve your performance at work and in life. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Goodbye.